Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research in neuroscience and psychology while talking through our own personal experiences. So this week on the podcast, we have a little bit of a different episode. Uh, We spoke to one of my friends who's doing the PhD with me, Kevin, and Kevin is actually a Buddhist monk. So we don't speak so much about his research, but more about his experience uh, as a monk, his ideas on what it means to have a self or no self and kind of these these broader, broader themes. One of my dear friends now, <laughs> and monk, <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> dear monk. So the way we came about this idea is I've been, so Kevin's doing a PhD in my lab, and we always kind of stop doing our lab work and have these conversations about life and enlightenment and the implications of, of meditation and all these kinds of things. And I've been telling Ava about those conversations I've been having. And I ever thought, oh, that's a lot of those questions are really interesting. So maybe it would be good to have Kevin on the podcast and we can ask you about some of that. And I am very, very happy to be here on the, on the <laughs> podcast. And to, to uh, and I echo this sentiment that Beth is a very, very good friend now. And Ava, I, I'm sure I'm sure you become a good friend as well. Yeah, we'll get there. I just got to get to to Australia and then, yeah. and then he'll, he'll be my, my dear friend and monk as well. When Ava first asked what kind of monk Kevin was, I did say extreme. So that, that's my extent of knowledge on, on what's going on. So hopefully you can shed more light on all of that. <laughs> yeah. Am I an extreme monk? I, I, I don't know how extreme I am, but it's so technically though, I am a monk in what's called the Theravada forest tradition. Okay. So that is you could say it's one of the earliest schools of Buddhism. And the objective of the Theravada forest lineage is most of the time you spend your time living in the forest oh, okay. and meditating. You don't spend most of your time in a lab at a university. Right. <laughs> so I have spent many, many years already in a forest. And so, but, and so now I'm not in a forest anymore. So. Am I extreme? No, <laughs> maybe. So how many years have you been, and do you say practicing? So in essence, I've been a monk for quite a long time. I've been a, an act, I've been ordained now for 17 years. And in that 17 years, as I said, I spent many, many years in Thailand, in the jungles, in the, and then come back to Australia, living in mainly the forest in Australia. And I, I got to a point where it's like, well, I can do my own meditation and I can, I can live my life in this way, but it is pretty sheltered and it's pretty, it's pretty much, you know, you, you hear the same kinds of opinions, you do the same things, you talk to the same people, the kind of ideas that you have, it all just echoes each other. So that, that gets a little bit boring after a while. So I decided to finish up my psych degree that I'd started beforehand and I just found it quite rewarding to actually do an academic path outside of Buddhism but and my Buddhist practice but also that's something that's a little bit aligned with what I do and in my kind of practice of meditation and Buddhism. And is so and yeah some of these questions that I ask are going to be entirely naive because I am quite naive to all naive this. Naive so questions just, are great. So is so from my understanding of becoming a monk is that, mm. yeah, you remove yourself from kind of interacting with society. Yep. You know, you have these long periods of time where you don't speak and all of those things. Mm. Is being in academia in conflict with some of those core beliefs or is that another form of contemplation? So how does that fit together? I wouldn't say it's in conflict of a core belief because there's plenty of monastics that do take an academic tract. But most of the time, they'll take an academic tract in specifically in Buddhist studies and Buddhist philosophy. So it isn't it isn't really in conflict. But you you could say you could say it is a little bit different, at least in my specific tradition, because we are so focused on being in the forest and all these kinds of things. So it's it's not in conflict, but it's it's just not so common. So therefore, you know, you don't see too many of me walking around. <laughs> 
walking around. So it's it's not common, but everybody that I everybody that's in my lineage and stuff, they you know they're all fine with it. So. Yeah. So then, and what do you want to give a bit of an overview about what you're studying in your PhD? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So what I'm essentially looking at is whether different kinds of meditation actually change the way that you morally engage in the world. Obviously. Different kinds of meditations are meant to do different things to your mind states. So you would assume that if you're doing those over a long period of time, your mind states and the way that you're viewing the world is changing. So essentially, you'd also include in that that maybe the way that you're morally engaging in the world is changing. So the kind of questions that I'm asking are, well, what actually is meditation doing to your moral life? I obviously come from a Buddhist perspective. And we obviously have Buddhist meditation, but within that we have a pre-existing ethical framework that we're meant to adhere by. Most meditation styles these days, they don't have that. So it's, it's pretty hard to say that, okay, meditation will just make you a better person, a more moral person. It's like, well, actually, is it? And are different meditations doing different things to your morality? And in essence, what hopefully the research I'll be doing is getting to is one of the biggest goals of practicing meditation is that you're trying to see through the illusion of the ego that you have or the sense of self. And now if you actually get that, my question is, is well, if you're not operating from a sense of self, what's that actually doing to the way that you're morally engaging in the world? And so I'll try and do a little bit of experimental work around that and try and do a little bit of like philosophical conceptual work around that so that's that's me in a nutshell and if I can get that worked out (laughs) you know I'd be pretty happy but let's see (laughs) so are you working under the assumption or hypothesis that a certain type of medication meditation sorry which you can maybe explain more like what exactly goes into the meditation that you do would lead to someone becoming more morally engaged or just differently morally engaged and Like a part two of my question is because I guess from the outside, meditation Buddhism feels like it's about reaching this point where you completely disengage from your ego and you let go of your attachments. Then why would you want to morally engage at all if you're no longer kind of like, you know, living in the world as as us regular humans? So I guess that's a kind of two partier. So you can take that as you will. Yeah. So I guess to the first part. So you would. You'd, you'd maybe think like there's different, obviously there's many, many different kinds of meditation, but let's take two of the really big ones and the really popular ones these days is uh, mindfulness meditation and then also compassion meditation. Now, these are two very different styles that actually instigate very different kinds of mind states. Compassion is very, very different from being non-judgmental to all of your emotional experience in the world. So you might think that, well, if I practice compassion meditation, I might have, you know, more of these compassionate feelings, more of these kinds of compassionate ways that I interact in the world. I'm actually trying to actively promote these compassionate feelings. So maybe the way that I morally engage in the world is more kind and generous. Now, but maybe something like mindfulness, because you're operating from this standpoint of any emotion that I have I looking at this non-judgmentally, things arise and pass away in the world and I just step back from them, that actually might be changing the way that you're judging moral events. If you're trying to foster a non-judgmental attitude, what's that doing to the way that you're morally judging things in the world? And so there's the potential there for different kinds of meditations to sort of change the way that you morally engage in the world maybe in that way and there's obviously there's lots more different kinds of meditation but you know they're just two of the bigger ones and you'll have to ask me the second part of the question again because i have a very uh, very bad short-term memory <laughs> okay i guess i have i have a follow-up question to um yeah. that part so yeah. so i guess you're hypothesizing that these different forms of meditation would lead to very different kind of worldviews and engagement so mm. Are you hypothesizing then that the mindfulness and the the more no judgment would lead to a kind of detachment and that the compassion would be would be doing the opposite? And what about people like so I, I again don't know much about Buddhism, but so if you're, you know, a standard everyday Buddhist, so like a civilian Buddhist versus like a monk, are you practicing both or does it really depend on the tradition that you're in as well? 
So, because the thing is, a, a big part about Buddhist meditation practice, it's not just the meditation. Like, it's there's so many other things that are involved in it. As I said, there's this kind of, there's this, there's an ethical component, there's a social component, there's the, the different kinds of components where you're actually actively trying to do acts of generosity all the time. You know, you're pushing against your natural inclination. You're, there's all these different other kinds of practices. There's study. There's all these different areas that are a part of the practice that are above and beyond the meditation. So from the kind of Buddhist framework, a lot of these external forces are, 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 are changing the way that you actually engage in the world anyway, as opposed to just the meditation. But what I was getting to before of like, well, these days, most of the time, people just practice the meditation side of it and they forget the rest of it. So it's, it's, I think it's sort of hard to say, well, like, well, okay, is it just the meditation that's making you morally better or morally worse? I can't really tell yet. So, you know, the, the kind of hypothesis, the kind of hypothesis is that, you know, I, I do think different kinds of meditations are going to change the way that you morally engage in the world. But I also think maybe within those specific kinds of meditations, maybe one kind of meditation makes some aspects of your morality better, but it might make it worse, other parts worse. Whereas another meditation might do the same, might make some other parts of your morality better, might make some other than worse. So I think we need to sort of do a bit more careful research around this and actually find out well, which kind of meditation is making, say, for example, your behaviors better, but which kind makes it worse? And if you realize that one makes it worse, then you can supplement with a different kind of meditation. I think that's a really good point. I think I definitely forget that in terms of being a monk, that it's not just this meditative practice, it's all these other things that you do with the community and all of, yeah, and, and that kind of helps I don't know, that path that, that you're on and that, that journey. And mm. I think, yeah, that's good to remember because I definitely, when I think, oh, I think, oh, it's just meditating and not speaking and mm. trying to lose sense of self. <laughs> but I, obviously it's all these other practices. Well, I don't know if it's too early to get into it, but another thing I wanted to talk about is, so, well, first of all, is the, is the ultimate goal of becoming a monk, is that to achieve enlightenment? In most cases, yes. And then could you just explain a bit about what enlightenment is? Because we hear about it a lot. And I feel like at the moment, it's kind of one of these hot topics that everyone is talking about and different ways you can achieve it, whether that's taking like psychedelics or all of these kinds of things. Hmm. But yeah, so what what is it? Right. Okay. So I've got to answer this in a very short period of time. <laughs> so in essence... What I and just as a as a caveat to this, like I'm not enlightened, so I don't really know. I, I'm not there yet, so I, I uh, so whatever I say is just coming from at least what I know conceptually, not what I know personally. So, what you'd say enlightenment is, though, to some extent, is that you've trained your mind to an extent where any kind of negative states of mind that come up, any kind of any kind of wanting and and any kind of wanting or any kind of ill will or hatred in the mind or any kind of state of of sort of fundamental confusion about about the way things are that becomes eradicated and in place of that then the mind becomes very positive you could say there's states of compassion kindness clarity wisdom the kind of full enlightenment experience would mean that your mind sort of fundamentally changed to that way and it's sort of and it's not going back now you can get smaller glimpses of that where it changes for a little while it might you might get insight into it for half an hour or a day or two days or three days but then it you know you just go back and yeah, you get angry because you have to walk up the stairs or whatever it is. You can have these smaller kinds of experiences where things change, but then you there's a bit of a regression to the mean. You go back to normal. But you could say like the bigger kind of enlightenment is where it would fundamentally change altogether. And do you think if... Yeah, because this is another thing that I wonder about. If So if people do achieve this sense of enlightenment, what is your engagement with 
quote unquote the real world mm. and because when I I don't know Ava how you feel but when I hear about enlightenment it's actually something I don't want to achieve <laughs> because I for me you know relationships and complexities with around those and feeling so connected to the world is so important and I do feel that strong feelings of love kind of need to come with these other feelings because when people you love are hurt and those things I would never ever want to give any of that up because I feel so connected to that so yeah what are the consequences I guess of of your engagement with the world if you become in enlightened and also did you initially like is that an experience people initially have it apprehension to becoming enlightened I mean I'm saying like it's easy and we could all just choose to do it but is there a worry around what you lose through that there could be, but because, as I said, like if it is like enlightenment in this more kind of grounded and real sense, you're developing so many of those other qualities anyway, those good positive qualities. It's not like you're going to lose anything because of it. It's you know that the kindness and compassion that comes about through the mind that is you know, well trained in this way. You're not losing any of those love and connections. If, if anything, you're getting more of it. It's and but it's not maybe not just so focused that these individual things in the world it becomes more boundless. So I, I, I'm not really sure that you actually would lose anything because of it. One thing that you might lose though is the is the like the downsides of the love and attachment of you know when things change <laughs> when things change you get heartbroken. Those kinds of things potentially wouldn't rock you as much. Right, so if you experience like the loss of a loved one, that mm. would be something that would you wouldn't feel the pain as much. Is that not? I wouldn't say that you wouldn't feel the pain. Obviously, like if say for example, again, not enlightened, but if my mum died, I'd be like, I'm yeah, really okay. upset. You know, like I'd be super upset. That'd be terrible. But there would be this kind of acceptance there that this is the way it is, and that's part of the enlightenment experience as well is that you are just at ease with the way that the world is so it's not like you're taking anything away of like well i just i don't care about the world anymore right you care about it deeply but you have a deep acceptance of the way that it actually is as well so if people are to to come and go it's like you're very you would be very like you know, overjoyed that you got to spend that time with them but you'd also be okay with when it does finish. I guess from, yeah, from like a lay perspective, it just Mm. feels really difficult to understand how you could simultaneously have love and compassion and care deeply without also being attached to someone. One thing with sort of attaching to people, we always attach to people because they're like a certain way. We love them for a particular kind of reason. Now, one thing you sort of have to ask yourself is like, is that a is that a is that a true kind of love, or is that a love of the way that I think this person is? If we can actually really have kindness and compassion for someone, whoever they are and whatever way they are, and if that changes, that's a more you could say. That's a more kind of. That's more care and compassion in this kind of altruistic, pure kind of sense, because you don't care if they change or not. But it's like, well, I love this person, and now they've changed, now I don't love them anymore. So there's an attachment there. So, but if you do it without attachment, these people can change, and it's fine. And another thing is, because sometimes I wonder, do you think that just, say, if everyone became enlightened, (laughs) would... Would we have a functioning society? Like, what would that look like? Is this something we should all be aiming to achieve? Or is this something that we should be letting a few people to achieve so they can then help others? What, yeah, what should our, I guess, yeah, what should the end goal be? Just as a quick answer to that, I'm pretty sure, like, most people aren't going to become enlightened. Yeah, so we don't have to worry. So I, I, I think, I, I, don't think, I don't think you have to worry about it too much because it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to do. So, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's too much. And, and also, like, it's, it's this – and the reason I say that is because different people are predisposed to do different things. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not a truck, but there are plenty of people that are disposed to be truck drivers. Mm-hmm. So not everyone's predisposed to become 
enlightened right. either or to do to give this to like give their whole life up to actually do this thing but is it something that we would want if everybody could do that that's a you know that's a that's a very different question i'm not really sure i've been thinking about this for a few years and i you know it 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 mightn't be it mightn't be the best thing that everybody is enlightened you know you do need people there to you know, cure cancer and do all the kind of work that needs to be done so I, i'm not sure if it's it is good for everybody to actually do that but that doesn't mean that everybody couldn't benefit from actually trying right i see so how actively would you say are you pursuing enlightenment and is the academic part of it helpful to that or is it kind of like you're taking a pause on the enlightenment path or it's just a deviation or it's it's actually helping you get there for me i think it's helping me get there because a part of it is because one of the big things about what I think enlightenment is, is it's like really deeply understanding your experience for what it is. And a part of the kind of academic tract and the things that I like to work on are working in that area. So I'm like thinking about these things deeper and, and thinking, well, okay, all these Buddhist beliefs that I had, are they or the, the, the things that I read and the things that I take on, are these things right? So it's helping me get clearer and clearer about the things that I think are the most important to me in life. So, you know, would it be better if I was back, like, meditating 16 hours a day? Like, maybe, but at least for where I am at this point in time, I think this is the best use of my time and this is the, this is the thing that will actually get me clearer on sort of the way the way I understand my life. Yeah, because Kevin's not panicked about time. Sometimes I'm saying, what are you going to do after your PhD? And he's like, I don't, don't know. know. I just... don't know. I don't care. <laughs> Another thing, and this doesn't, this is a question I feel like applies to a lot of people with with a lot of different religious beliefs, but is it sometimes hard because you have a degree in psychology and all of these things how does that fit with the beliefs on some of the things like reincarnation and, and those kind of things in, in your practice? Yeah. And I mean, that's a hard question, I feel like, for that all scientists who have, are asked. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no... Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question, but I'm just curious if, yeah. you, if what you think of that. I think, I think of anything that we sort of experience or anything that we can know about, we, we really do have to be... I, I, I fundamentally believe we have to take the, the stance that we have to be agnostic to anything. You have to be open to the fact that, you know, we could be wrong. So I'm as open to the fact that rebirth is wrong as I am as open to the fact that rebirth is right. I could be wrong about I could be totally wrong about it. So I, I think for me, taking the agnostic stance on most things is the best way to go about it. Obviously, there's there's the kinds of Buddhist beliefs, and there's a kind of, you know, there's the kind of party line that I'm meant to tow, but I, I I've never really towed it. It's just like, well, I'm very agnostic about these things and very open to it. So, for me, it's it's not really a problem. Yeah. Is that type of like deviation from the party line an issue in the communities that I, I don't know if you're are you part of a monastery i don't know how it works <laughs> I, you know i i raise i raise eyebrows sometimes <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's i think i think if you're just being honest with people most of the time you're you're actually trying to really trying to work something out with people even if you do say something that is against the party line that most people will be like oh, okay well you know that's a different way to look at it and you know that's fine you're trying to work this out and they're quite accepting of it so yeah as i said it's for me it really is about being agnostic about it. So that's, you know, I can't be sort of pinned down on either side. Mm. I can't be pinned down if I'm supporting this thing or I can't be pinned down that I'm like not supporting this thing. It's just I'm really, truly agnostic about it. So, yeah, so while I say some things when I move on the side of not supporting it, it it'll raise an eyebrow here and there, but most of the time it's it's fine. Okay, I was just going to ask, so if if you were to reach enlightenment, like does enlightenment have anything to do with attaining or understanding or having knowledge of truth as as a concept? So if you were to be enlightened, would you 
have a better understanding of these things like reincarnation or would you still be agnostic and that's just part of that's also part of enlightenment is just being okay with these types of contradictions i'm i'm not sure there's if you look at the kind of textural and scriptural beliefs in buddhism it says that like if you become fully enlightened some people might develop the ability to know these things but other people might become enlightened and they don't have the ability to know these things so it's not to say that if you were to become enlightened that you would definitely know for sure or not for sure but the thing the thing about it is if you were to become enlightened these kinds of things wouldn't really matter because what you're becoming clearer on is the nature of phenomena and the nature of your existence that it fundamentally is just something that continues to change and you've deeply accepted that so the the questions those kinds of questions they don't really matter anymore so are you getting closer to reality i guess it's just more getting closer to an understanding of the way existence appears to be so is is but is that reality though I, you know i don't, I don't know <laughs> and another so we have had kelsey on the podcast and spoken about the self and we've had other episodes mm. where we talk about the self so yeah in you're trying to achieve so loss of ego right mm. and is that also loss of self mm. it's so I guess I guess the first thing we have to think of is like what do we actually mean by the self? We don't know. Yeah, yeah. What do we actually like mean by the self? Like most of the time most people th- when you ask people explicitly what do I actually mean by the self? Most people think it's like oh there's this kind of me that's sort of inside here that is the little voice inside my head and this is the thing that I feel like is this is me. This is the center of existence. So if we're going to speak about the self in that way, what you would be, one thing that you're trying to do on the path to enlightenment, on the path of practice, is to always be inquiring into what this thing is. You know, is this thing really me? Or is it something that continually changes all the time? You know, what I feel is me continually changes, and what I feel is me actually is like an appearance in my conscious existence it's if you really deeply look at it it's just this thing that appears there and it continues to change so this thing that appears and continues to change you know can i say that that is a real thing is this a solid thing that stays throughout time and if you look at it it's like well it's just another it's just another appearance it's just another feeling so this thing that i think is me it's just this like changing phenomena and so that you know that can be terrifying that panics me that, that i'm terrifying. smiling because i'm panicked like, I, <laughs> this makes me really freak out <laughs> yeah so i actually wanted to ask about that because this mm. is one of the things we talked about in our in our episode on mindfulness and meditation was mm. that that's one of the things that actually like causes people a lot of anxiety and yeah. there's one researcher who's done work on how meditation can actually make people more anxious and worsen yep. mental health yep. problems because yep. of like, yep. and I had this experience too when I was like on this meditation app and they were like, look for the self, where is it? And I was like, whoa, 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 <laughs> you know? And apparently it can cause like dissociation in really yep. bad cases. Yep. So I was wondering how you feel about that and how you feel about, or if you know anything about the fact that like people are now practicing mindfulness and meditation without all of these other practices that are potentially like safeguards or potentially just like create this almost like cultural framework in which you can understand the experiences that you're having. Because, you know, for for a monk, it's like, oh, I'm losing something that feels like the sense of self, but that's the point. Whereas for someone who's like a businessman who's just trying to like enjoy playing with his kids, Mm. then losing a sense of self is very distressing. So I'm wondering if you know anything about like how this, this kind of thing is translating into more mainstream non-religious like secular western life for sure it, it and yeah definitely it can have a negative impact on people it's it's there's there's no denying that and you know it can go wrong it can and it can really go wrong and it's 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 i think we should do everything that we actually can to understand that more when it does go wrong and to put the kind of guidelines in place so you don't actually go wrong the the biggest kind of thing in 
practicing these things. And as you said, like in a lot of apps now, like they're, they're actually like teaching this. And it's like my view on this is like you've missed a few fundamental steps first. You need like real stability of the mind before you actually start delving into this thing. You need a few years of practice. And as you said, those all those other all those other frameworks around that before you actually start diving into that. I think it's a bit of a, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too confident about like diving into it straight away. I think it's something you do need to build up a bit of resilience, a bit of practice. You need to sort of take it in small doses before you like really go hard and like go into this kind of who is the self like <laughs> and sort of then just spend the rest of the weekend by yourself like you, <laughs> you don't you don't want to do that so i think there should be a bit more of a build-up to it and there should be some more of these sort of fundamental practices around it before you sort of start jumping into that so yeah i think we should be really careful because i and i've also you know i've seen a lot of people have like very bad in meditation trying to look at these kinds of things and it's just not for their not for their benefit so you should I think you really should be ready to actually look for this thing. So it's not like everybody should actually go and look for it anyway. Right. So do you think some people, they don't, yeah, they don't need to, I just feel like all this stuff gets so confusing and complicated. Mm. But do you think that there's some people who, so you know how you were saying before, some people are best to be truck drivers. Some Mm. people, do you think there's some people who are best just to feel sense of self and not yeah. let go of that. Yeah. This is Beth trying to have an excuse to not meditate. And yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. I, I, I'm dragging her. I'm dragging her eventually. <laughs> no, but so actually, like, this is one of the things that obviously, you know, the bit, one of the big things in Buddhism is things are not self. And this is the big thing that we're all trying to get at. But actually, there's so many aspects of meditative tradition and, and Buddhist traditions where it is actually, you're actually trying to build an actively very positive sense of self. You have to really build this sense of self in the most positive way and understand it the best that you po- you possibly can before you can let it go. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. You can't just go, I don't understand this thing, so I'm going to get rid of it. That's right. when people are going to get terrified. But if you really build this thing up and positive and you understand exactly what it is, then you can start not not sort of ignoring it or whatever, but just you've understood it and you're oh, okay, I've understand what the construct is now. So once you understand it, then you can let it go. But before you can understand it, mm-hmm. don't let it go because it's really, really helpful. Yeah. So actually in our center, we have a contemplation room and Kevin leads meditations with the group. But they're only five-minute sessions, so I don't know if we're that quickly going to lose our sense of self. <laughs> I hope not. Thank God. <laughs> Beth, Beth is clearly not ready for that. <laughs> I feel like we could have, well, I mean, if you would be okay with that, we could have, like, some little pop, like, things you've always wanted to ask a Buddhist mother. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, ask, okay. Like, ask me all this, like, this, I, I love stupid questions. Like, okay. I, I love questions that is, like, it's... Yeah, you, you didn't think you would want to ask it, but it's like, oh, I'll ask that thing. I really like these kinds of things. Yeah, what did... Because remember, I keep, I keep... I come in some days and I'm like, Kevin, I'm really embarrassed to ask this, but... All right, well, we'll start off with why do you have to wear that? So Kevin's in his robes. Yep. And they're a brownie. Yeah. And Kevin also wears everything this same brownie tone. So, so why is that? So, well, it's... In a way, it's to differentiate you because I you know I as I've taken on the role of being a Buddhist monk so I you know I have to live my life in a particular kind of way and so there's there's certain things that are appropriate for me to do and there's certain things that are not appropriate for me to do now if I wasn't like wearing this kind of uniform kind of thing I could just sort of go out and do whatever I want and nobody would really care so I have this I have this on now and I, I wear this because it's sort of in a way it does it does sort of it's a, like a external reminder of what you do right and so it's it's something that can differentiate you from the rest of the world of like okay well there's you know there's a there's a reason there's a reason he's not going to the pub and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all these all these kinds of things so yeah so it's and 
Yeah, it's it's also and the the robe I use it's like it's it's said to be the ones the same ones that they used in India two thousand six hundred years ago in the time of the Buddha as well. So, oh wow! Yeah. And another thing that I think people are interested in, and I still don't think I've wrapped my head around this. Hmm. So you can't receive income. Hmm. So how then? Yeah, how how does how how does that that work with su- with survival? Oh, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the probably one of the most fortunate positions in the world where I live off the kindness of other people. So anything that I I have in my life is is due to somebody else's kindness. So you know the food I eat every single day, the bus. The, the bus pass thing right. that gets me on a bus somebody somebody gives that to me so i'm really really fortunate that that people see what i do and think well that's actually like a, that's a good way to live so i'm going to help help him with that now there's there's obviously there's there's different things where it's like okay you know my mum's still around as well so if maybe somebody wants to offer offer something to help out with like a like a plane ticket or something they might just you know give the money to my mother or something and my mother sorts it out for me so oh, i see so right, yeah so but for me myself i can't go cool get a credit card let's just go and buy these things i, I can't do oh, that so do you not have a bank account no <gasps> i didn't know that yeah. oh so oh that's so i that's yeah. i spend so much time <laughs> with kevin <laughs> and i've never Notice, notice that. No. You, uh, so you see, I never buy anything. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. So I, I no, I don't have a bank account. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine not having a bank account. No. Not in a bad way. Just in yeah, like, yeah. Ava, can you imagine? No. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. So who <laughs> who are these people? who are providing you with these things? Is it like mostly random strangers who are providing you as an individual stuff? Or is it like people who are also part of this Buddhist tradition or, and is it to to a community or is it to you as an individual? So most of the time it's obviously Buddhists that, that sort of have an affinity with a particular kind of Buddhist tradition. And they will most of the time because, because again, like I can't. Like if somebody says, "Here's fifty dollars," I, 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 I just say, oh, I, "I can't actually receive that." It's very nice that you do that, but you have to sort of give it to the community. So most of the time, it does go to like a, you could say, like a central, right. a central kind of fund kind of thing. And then, but obviously, in that, if somebody's offered you something and you go, "Oh well, I need, I need a pair of shoes or something like that," you, somebody can actually take that so most of the time it is buddhists but like it, you'd be like you'd be like dumbfounded how many just absolutely random strangers give me things and it's i i know it's such a hard thing to wrap your head around it's like how do i get yeah. around in the world without money it's and and as i said i'm in a very very fortunate position where my whole life is geared around that so it's not like not like i'm saying everybody should do this Everything in my existence is geared around this. So, but you'd be surprised. It's like there's so many times where it's like I would be in a situation where I'd need money. It's like I don't know how I'm gonna like get around this, and something just works out. So yeah, like going to the doctor. Yeah, going to the doctor is. I live in Australia, so yeah, true. It's, it's not really a problem. Sorry, U.S. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? There? <laughs> yeah, so go to the doctor. It's it's fine and. Yeah, again, people people help if something extra needs to be done. People people help me out. So yeah, wow. And you just have to be, and also you just have to be content with whatever comes your way. And it's like, well, look, if 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 I need new glasses and and nobody's going to help me, it's like, oh, fine. I just I don't have glasses now. Kevin lost his glasses the other day. Yeah, <laughs> but you've got new ones, right? No, they're they're my old ones. Oh. But I I have got I've, I'm lucky enough. I've got some new ones coming. So. So. And Kevin lives at the Buddhist, is it the Buddhist Association of Victoria? Society of Victoria. Society yeah. of yep. Victoria. So people, yeah, do you want to describe, explain a bit about that? Because you always have people coming and staying yeah. and coming in. And yeah. So what are your other more, I guess, yeah, day-to-day duties? Or? Yeah. So, yeah, I do live a little bit of a split life of the kind of the academic 
the academic world and then having to sort of go back into the to the Buddhist world where where you are doing a lot of teaching you're you know leading meditation retreats and also on a day-to-day basis people come and you know, actually give me food every day and so a part of that is me actually not just getting the food and going great see you later is I sit down and talk to them and if they've got any problems in their lives or they got an issue that they want to talk to me about I sit down and listen to them and talk to them about that so so there's 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 that aspect of my existence but then also the place that I live out of the Buddhist Society of Victoria it's it's actually one of the I think it is the oldest Buddhist institution in Australia. Oh, cool. And so many different monks and nuns come through it. So there's other, plenty of other monks and nuns that come and stay like on the weekends and do teachings and do retreats. So I don't have to do it all. So I'm pretty lucky in, in that way as well. So yeah, plenty of monks and nuns coming through. But yeah, I do have to do a lot of these, a lot of these things. So. so are nuns different than monks? Is it just a gender thing? Uh, they they do have sort of like different rules. Okay. The rules are they're framed in a different way, and they actually they do have more rules than us. Can a woman uh, be a monk, or women have yeah. to be nuns? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so nun is just sort of the term for a monk that a woman is would a woman? be. Okay. So it technically what they're called is bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. So bhikkhu is for the male, bhikkhuni is for the female. Okay. But it's. It's essentially the same. There's just some different, like some different sort of rules that that are more specific, because you have to remember our rules originated 2,600 years ago in northern mm-hmm. India. So, yeah, there's different culture, different time, right. different different things were happening. So we do have a little bit different rules, but most of them are pretty similar. So, but yeah, it's is, the same same thing. Wear the same brown, do the same kind of things. Is there any issue again? Because I don't know anything about these traditions, but is there any, you know, like all the other older religions, like misogyny issue in, in Buddhism? Yeah, okay. yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> okay. uh, and and, uh, and I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be honest, like especially the tradition that I'm from. Okay. It's pretty, it is pretty bad, especially in, in Southeast Asian countries. It's pretty good in the West. Like uh, our tradition is pretty good in the West. But yeah, it's, it's not so great in, in, say, for example, Thailand or Burma or Laos. It's getting better in Sri Lanka, but yeah, it's there's a there's a there's an old guard, and you know the old guard never really wants to change things. So the nice thing is there is a newer generation of monastics coming through that are actually changing that. So that's quite encouraging. So yeah, so my my traditions we're not we're not we're we're not so great no, so great on that. But what would be and yeah an example because I. Yeah, and I know that about other religious beliefs, but in terms of Buddhism, mm. I, yeah, I, it's funny. It's one of those things that I don't. Where I think the the general idea of it, if it's just all goodness, mm. so yeah. we never yeah. think of of these things yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of the one of the bigger things was, say, for example, in some parts of Southeast Asia, women can't ordain as full monastics, like bhikkhunis. So full full nuns, brown and taking on all the rules most of the time they will have to go to another country and ordain and then come back come back there to do that so there so for example in thailand it's it was it was basically against the law like the actual the actual state law that for women to take on full ordination they could ordain as something that was called like a like an eight precept nun but they would just wear white and shave their head. And so the kind of status was very, very different. And there was a big kickback. And it was actually so, so it was more actually the Western, the Western monastics that said, this isn't right. You know, we can't sort of continue to do this. And there's been like really big steps to actually change that. But yeah, there's still, there is still sort of resistance there in a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of different cultures along that. So, and that's, that's actually, it's pretty, a lot of a lot of Buddhist cultures are like that as well, but it is it's definitely it's definitely changing now, which is quite nice. So. Is there also tension between, like, the fact that some of the the Western adoptions of of these types of traditions are trying to influence the kind of original? I guess it's not original, but the the form in which it is in in the country in which it originated. Is there a tension with like this idea of it? 
not I don't want to say imperialism, but like this, you know, this Western kind of hegemony that's always taking over things. Is there any like resentment about that in the traditional cultures? And when you were there, did you encounter any of that? Like anyone being like, why are you here? Um, no, no, no. Like uh, actually the opposite. So oh. actually the, the absolute opposite of like, wow, isn't it cool that you're here? Right. Is like you've, you know, the, the, so I, as I said, I went to Thailand to ordain and the, the support that I got was phenomenal. It was like, I can't believe you, you come from Australia. Like that place is meant to be really good. Like, why would right. you give all that up and come here and live in the forest in a, in a grass roof hut? Like, why would you do that? That seems stupid. So there was this, there was an absolute acceptance of like, this is actually so great that you, you're coming to do this. There is, there, there, at times though, there were, there is a little bit of the kind of con- like, like looking down on you of like, well, they're not really doing it right. right. Yeah. Mm. So, but that's, that's, you know, that wasn't like malicious in any kind of way, but it's like, mm. well, yeah, well, I, you know, we, we've got the culture, we're a Buddhist culture, the Westerners, they don't really know, but yeah overwhelmingly supportive but you know there's a few of these little things yeah hmm. are a lot of the the people who are in the, the was it victoria buddhist association is that what it's called yeah um yeah. are they mostly immigrants or are they also mostly australians who who were born in australia and then moved and then moved back a mix a quite a big mix so it's mainly yeah, no, there's, actually, yeah, it is a it is a true mix of people that were born in Australia. A lot of Sri Lankans come, a lot of Malaysians, Singaporeans, Thai people. So, but mainly people that are more interested in the you could say like other Buddhism. So, from those kinds of Theravadan countries, Thailand, Lanka, these kinds of places that are pretty Theravada based. But yeah, a lot of a lot of different people. Most of the time, I give a say for example, I give teachings on Friday nights, and at least. Half the room is people that are born in Australia. So, yeah. Because I was reading, actually, Buddhism's the third most popular. I don't know how you say that, religion in Australia. But we're not very, but we're not a very religious country. So yeah. it's not, so it's Christianity, Christian-based mm. religions, mm. Islam, and then Buddhism. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and I think that actually has a lot to do with the immigration population as yeah, well. I would, so, yeah. So, obviously, a lot of... People immigrating to Australia from Buddhist countries, and they they are Buddhist. So, yeah. Did you find that things changed when you? Because how long were you in Thailand? About ten years. Was it difficult to transition back to living in Australia, or was it like because because of the religious aspect and being a monk in Australia, or how was that experience? It was. It wasn't difficult, but there's. Uh, obviously there's pros of living in a Buddhist culture. Like everybody knows what you do. Nobody has to, you know, nobody asks any questions. And everyone's like, Dumb you don't questions. have a credit card. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody knows what you do. So it, like doing things is really, really easy. So, but when you come back to say, for example, a Western country, people don't know so much. So you do, you have to explain a lot more. There's nothing wrong with explaining, but it's just, you know, you, you, it's just a part of it you have to do. But on the other side of that as well, like you live in a Buddhist culture, there's so much that's expected of you. Right. And you don't have so much autonomy. You can't just go, I'm just going to go jump on the bus. People are like, there'll be different things that people are like, no, no, I'll take you for a lift and we'll have to do it this way and we have to do oh, it that way. okay. Where in the West, I can just go, look, I just, I'm going to go for a walk to the museum. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so it, wasn't, it wasn't a big change to come back. But, and I, I sort of quite enjoy it because it's just pretty quiet here. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, I have two more stupid questions. Yeah, 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 for okay. sure. So the first one is, so do you eat whatever people give you and are you allowed to eat extravagant things? So if someone brings you like a foie gras, can you like just eat that? Or you mean a what? Like a fancy, like a like a steak or something, like a Kobe okay. beef steak. Yeah. Or you can yeah, eat that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so I, so there's the common, there's a common conception that Buddhists are vegetarian and yeah, we're not. That. Like it's okay. uh, there's so, obviously there's some Buddhists that are vegetarian. The kind that I'm in, we're not because we rely on people's generosity. Now, if somebody just brings me something, I, I eat it. If somebody brings me something really, really like one of those like awesome steaks or whatever it is, I you know I eat it. If they don't bring me that, I don't eat it. If people bring me vegetarian food, I eat vegetarian. If people bring me meat, I eat meat. It's 
I'm just, I'm so appreciative that like people actually do this. I don't want to go, no, bring me this thing. Right. Don't bring me that thing. So in essence, whatever gets thrown in front of me, I eat. So, so, okay. so yeah, whether it's extravagant or whether it's just like toast, yep. that's just what I eat for the day. Okay. So you can eat anything as long as someone <laughs> gives it to yep. you. Okay. Um, okay. Then my, my other question is, is about like, is celibacy a thing and can you have yep. romantic relationships or is that not possible? So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fully celibate okay. like fully to the extreme okay. to the extreme and you can understand you I don't, maybe i don't have to explicitly say what the extreme yeah. of that is i am fully yeah uh, so i'm fully celibate now that's that is that is you could say unique to my tradition there are other buddhist monastics that that are not fully celibate right. there's say for example in tibetan some some forms of tibetan buddhism they can take a wife and all these kinds of things but the the tradition that i'm in yeah it's the full deal the <laughs> the full deal so yeah and it's and i i get i get that people like people sort of don't get it kind of thing but there's and they don't get how that can be possible but it is it is actually possible and like the one nice thing is obviously i'm not sort of I, you know i think it's fine for people to have relationships i think it's really really good it keeps people together but there's something there's something as well as when you sort of take that off the map of every relationship that you have with people you develop a different kind of relationship mm. with people it's like i'm not trying to look for anything with anybody it's mm. like all that's just sort of gone so it's like i just i at least try to just see the person for what they are and say like, oh, i'll talk to you and chat to you about things and yeah so that that's something that goes out of it now that's not to say that having that thing is a bad thing it's mm -hmm. you know it's definitely not but it's it's just a different way of engaging in the world and it's something that i find helpful yeah okay i Actually, and I nobody's forcing me to do it as well. Like it's yeah, I, I just remember I did take all this, yeah. <laughs> all this, all this no credit cards and you know full celibacy and you know, you know eating toast. Like I chose to do this, yeah. so it's it is something. If if at any point I just go nah, I don't want to do this anymore. You don't have to. I don't have to. Yeah. I, I go back to you know, there's nobody, there's nobody standing around me with a, like a cat of nine tails, like, <laughs> like, like telling me not to do this. Okay, looping back to maybe the entire beginning of the conversation, mm. something that I wanted to ask was, so when you're talking about relationships, you're saying that you're kind of taking away some boundaries that you might have otherwise had because you're accepting a person as maybe not even just a whole, but maybe more than a person because you're accepting that they're changing. So do, do you feel like that is kind of what reconciles the the love and no attachment in the sense that do you have the same types of feelings or if you were enlightened would you have the same moods towards your mom as you would to any other person mm. i think it'd change i think it would change but i i i really do have the feeling it would change for the better in that, you know, like at the moment, I love my mum now, and as I said, I'm not enlightened. I'm I'm pretty attached to my mum, <laughs> pretty attached to my mum, and I do love her. But I I can sort of I can sort of see at times when, say for example, my practice is going really well, it's like the same kind of care and compassion that I have for my mum, I can have for anybody else as well. And so that's not taking anything away from my mum, and the relationship that I have with my mum, and that kind of care that I actually have for my mother. But that's actually extending out into others as mm -hmm. well. So there's not a kind of like, I only love you and I don't love you. You're like a hierarchy of like, I love you the most. Yeah. So yeah. you're the most special. Yeah. Yeah, you can love. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Everyone yeah. equally. So, so it's, is that, sorry, go on. Yeah, go on, go on. Is that what allows for this potential heightened sense of morality? And the second part of this question is, does that mean that you would be able to have like a specific opinion or potentially the truth about like some of the moral dilemmas that are in philosophy, like trolley problem, things like that. Like where mm. would the the Buddhist enlightenment fall on the different philosophical perspectives that we have, like from utilitarianism to like deontology and stuff like that? 
Yeah, a lot of a lot of people have tried to sort of pin that down. It's uh, it's. Yeah, I'm sure that's a lot I, of people's like PhD theses. So sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I don't have a good intuition on that at the moment kind of thing of of where the Buddhists would land on all those different kinds of positions. I think because. Uh, at least this is how I understand it at the moment, because you've spent so much time like training to not harm yourself or not harm others, this sort of becomes ingrained in you. So this kind of any any kind of dilemma that you would come up against where you would have to cause some kind of harm, you'd at least have a decent handle on, well, what's what's the thing that's going to cause the least amount of harm and without going well little bit yeah it is a little bit utilitarian it's so it's maybe it's utilitarian with the compassion involved as well <laughs> as opposed to the the hardcore utilitarian <laughs> so, side of compassion <laughs> yeah yeah so it's I, I think because you've like essentially you've you've trained so long of trying not to harm others that then potentially once you sort of get to that point then yeah you maybe you have a I don't know a decent guiding way of how to morally engage in the world or more, more finely attuned but yeah I don't, I don't really know i just keep thinking about it's i thought what was so interesting is if you reach the this kind of enlightenment it's mm. not that the love for your mum changes it's mm. that you can have that love for everyone and i feel like for me and probably for a lot of people kind of just having love for only some people like that's such yeah it's a really Mm. attachment thing and Mm. that's so important like Mm. i love ava more than a lot of people and Mm. that's so important Mm. to me and that Mm. i tell people and Mm. i just can't imagine yeah i I don't know i just had this moment i was like oh wow i guess it would be possible to love everyone the way i love ava Mm. (laughs) but that's just so not what we're ever i don't know taught we're not really designed to either yeah okay we're, we're not really designed to go well i I'm going to take on the suffering of the world and right. I'm going to love everybody in, in the next tribe, in the next, right. you know, the, the hoarding marauds that are coming over the hills. I, you know, I, you know, loving them, loving them as one is, is sort of not probably the best way to right, stave okay. off the hoarding marad. But so, you know, and this, this actually gets to like interesting questions as well as like, well, you know, is that preferable? Right. You know, do we need aggression? Do we mm. need all these kinds of things? But and so getting back to some of the original things is like should everybody do it probably not Mm. probably not because there's going to be still bad people in the world right and we need to Uh, you know if everyone could be enlightened you wouldn't have the bad people but there's still going to be bad people so you know maybe it is good to have these people that aren't enlightened so but it is something that you can sort of start to work towards if like you know, breaking down those kinds of barriers of like, you know, yeah, I, I, I love you more than mm. I love you. And this works for things like your the way you morally judge people as well. It's like, if I hate you, I'm going to judge you a lot harsher. Or if you've done something that I think is reprehensible, I'm going to judge mm. you terribly and I'm going to punish you a lot. But I love you and you've done the same mm. thing. I'm not going to judge you or punish you as much as I would this other person. So it can start to dissolve those things where you can actually look a little bit more objectively at the mm. world. Of like, okay, well, here's the action. Here's the action. And now, because I'm not so enmeshed and attached to you, mm. I can actually judge the situation maybe a little bit better. So That's so interesting. And that's, uh, that's not always problematic, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue. Like, sometimes we probably should... Like if, you know, repeat offenders, you know, we probably should judge them more harshly. And But it's, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a bit of a, you could say like the kind of enlightenment project and the like, you know, instigating social norms is probably, it is a bit of a different project as mm-hmm. well. So, you know, sometimes, oh, crap. Some, sometimes some of these things are useful, but, you know, other times, other mm-hmm. times, yeah, maybe it's not so useful. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for letting us pick your brain and for... No, no problem. Hopefully hopefully something useful came no, out of it. No, it was awesome. I, I feel like I've got a lot to think about. <laughs> just just the credit card thing. Yeah. Oh, does... <laughs> That's what's going to keep her up at night. None of the questions about enlightenment and existence, just, just the credit How card. How does he get by without a credit card? <laughs> Wait, you pull a phone out all the time. How does a phone work? Wait, do you have a phone? Yeah. 
Did someone yep. give you the phone? Is that why? Yep. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay. again, I'm just I like I know I'm incredibly lucky. Like I I'm and I'm really in this very very unique situation. So I I try not to take it. You know, I, I try not to take advantage of it. And I you know, I so and that's why. Well, sort of, you know, getting back to, you know, why do you wear the things you do? It's like, you know, like I have to remind myself of like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really lucky I'm in this situation and I have to, people are helping me out so much. So I have to try to do the best that I possibly can to live up to that expectation and live up to all the help that people give me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really fortunate in that way. So it's, you know, sort of how to, I have to uphold my hand of the bargain of, like trying to help people as mm-hmm. much as I possibly can in, in the small, you know, seemingly menial and meaningless ways that I that I can. So, but yeah, it's, you know. Kevin doesn't help people in small ways. He's a very loving, caring, helpful person. So I just want to. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the point, right? He's, that's right. <laughs> you better be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was great to talk to you. I really appreciate it, and this was so fun. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.